0: And so that's why, in the, in the winter of 2020, I started reaching out to some of the people who I had interviewed at news scenes over the past two decades. To number one, say, "Do you even remember me? Do you remember speaking with me?" Number two, to say, I'm, "I'm researching a book, and I'd like you to be a part of it." And to be honest, in some of the cases, I I also asked a third question, which was, "Do I owe you an apology? Do do I?" Do you regret speaking with me? Do you regret me intruding on your life during what in some cases might have been the worst or the most tumultuous or the most chaotic day of your life? and and that going into these meetings and these phone calls with people when I finally tracked them down, it was it was humbling and it was also incredibly rewarding to put together the 10 stories that that make up my book.
1: From Bookworms in the Wild and from Anchor, I'm Howard Alterescue, and this is my podcast where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading. Recently, I've also asked a number of my guests about what they've written, which is the case today. Before I welcome my guest today, let me briefly run through some books I've recently read. Trust by Hernan Diaz, Great Read, The Gilded Age of the Roaring Twenties, The Great Depression, Wall Street, wealth, money, power, immigrants, anarchists. The Role of Women in Society. A Search for Truth Along the Boundaries Between History and Fiction. To some extent, a period piece, but actually timeless. Highly recommended. Brooklyn by Colm Toybin. Selfless Love for a Sibling. A Relationship Born Out of Either Love or Loneliness. White Lies and Unintended Consequences. Holm Toybin is terrific. Bird by Bird, Some Instructions on Writing and Life by Anne Lamott. Perfect title. The most important instruction, and one also given by Stephen King, Mary Carr, and George Saunders in their books on writing. Lamott passes along her father's guidance to her 10-year-old brother, who was overwhelmed by an assignment to write a report on birds. Her father said... Bird by bird, buddy, just take it bird by bird. Great advice. Washington Square by Henry James. The plot of this 1890s novel involves a nervous, shy heir who is seduced by a possible trickster of whom their guardian disapproves. Same plot as the first part of Hanya Yanakahara's recent masterpiece, To Paradise, which also takes place in Washington Square and which inspired me to read the Henry James masterpiece. The Boys of Summer by Roger Kahn. Brooklyn in the late 1940s and early 1950s. The Dodgers when they were in Brooklyn, and later, the traumatizing move to Los Angeles. As I read, I frequently felt as if I was either in a major league dugout or in the newsroom of the once great and now defunct Herald Tribune. Marvelous book to read, particularly during baseball season. Grab this from the outdoor free library at La Valletta, my local Italian restaurant in the city. Let me finish by Roger Angel. I passed the corner bookstore on Madison and 93rd on a walk with Carol and little baby Francesca not too long ago and popped in out of habit, only to emerge with this memoir by the recently deceased revered essayist and fiction editor of The New Yorker, who was known especially for his essays on baseball. Loved getting to know this great writer and his connection through his mother to The New Yorker since its founding. Thank you, Frankie. Fleischman is in Trouble by Taffy Brodesser-Ackner. Recommended to me a few years ago by my friend Rachel Coons, the great bartender at the Pines in Mount Tremper and more recently by my daughter, Melanie. Turns out that every Fleischman is in deep trouble. A graphic novel in the most literal sense. Lots to think about, well done. I read Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream to prepare for a podcast discussion I recently had and that I released last week. Misguided or Misdirected Lovers, Kings and Queens, Marriages and Dreams, The Irrepressible Fairies, The Play Within the Play, and the tension between what some think of as one of Shakespeare's most sexual plays and also as the one most suitable for children. An unlikely but highly effective combination. And finally, Horse by Geraldine Brooks. Terrific story, a good balance of fiction and heavily researched historical content. Suspenseful and terrifying in many spots. This is a novel about the life of a slave in the pre-Civil War South, who expertly trained a legendary racehorse, and also about race and racial tensions in the current day. In a PBS NewsHour interview, the author acknowledged the discourse about cultural appropriation and the resulting responsibilities. She said, I could have written about the horse and the white owners, but that to me would be another unconscionable erasure of the contributions of the Black Horseman. So I knew I was going to have to go there. I came to the conclusion that it was better to make the honest attempt than to leave the story untold. And also, I feel like any attempt at empathy, no matter how imperfect it might be, shouldn't be despised because we need more attempts at empathy, not fewer. A highly recommended read. And now for today's guest, my friend Laura Metzger from Aura Carrington recently sent me a note telling me that she would like to send me a book written by her friend, NBC4 news correspondent, Jen Maxfield. I thanked Laura and then googled around to find out more about the book and about Jen. I was quite intrigued, and so I asked Laura to see if Jen would like to talk with me on the podcast. And here we are.
0: Well, Howard, thank you so much for having me. And and any friend of Laura's is a a friend of mine. And I was taking notes during your previous section on all of the wonderful books you've read. And I love the Geraldine Brooks quote that that you shared about empathy and that we need more empathy in the world. That's really the spirit in which I I wrote my book as well.
1: Uh, That's wonderful. I'm glad you you picked up on that because that's one of the many things I got out of your book. I had dreams many years ago of being a journalist although I think I was focused on print journalism, uh, having been a dedicated follower of James Reston, Tom Wicker, Russell Baker, Pete Hamill, Jimmy Breslin, James Wexler, all names from the past, print luminaries of the Times, the Tribune, the New York Post, the Daily News of the 60s and 70s. Right. And my TV journalist heroes also reflect my age, Cronkite, Huntley and Brinkley, Dan Rather, and Tom Brokaw. Your book, more, More After the Break... A Reporter Returns to 10 Unforgettable News Stories, as I think I've said to you, conveys a dedication, insights, emotion, honesty, as you said, empathy, humility, and introspection. And several of these are traits displayed by many of the journalists I looked up to over the years. So you're, you're an Emmy Award-winning correspondent for NBC4 New York. You cover breaking news and general assignment stories in New Jersey, and you're a fill-in anchor and I I gather frequently, on all of NBC4 New York's newscasts. That's right. What is it about this experience that led you to write the book? And maybe you can talk a little bit about the book itself. And more importantly, for me, I love the way you tell the story. So why don't you talk a little bit about the book?
0: Thank you. So, yes, I I came up with the idea of the book quite some time ago. uh, And then I really started researching and and, uh, calling the families about being a part of the book. Uh, back in November, December of 2020. And the genesis of the idea came truly from my own genuine curiosity. Just to give people a little background on local news, the way my typical workday goes, and, and that of many local news reporters in New York City and beyond, is we have a an assignment that we get at the, in the morning, and that may be based on a story that we pitched or something that we have to cover, let's say a primary election or some sort of flood happening somewhere, we go out and do that story. It may get changed based on breaking news. The story airs that evening at 4 or 5 or 6 p.m. And 99 times out of 100, that's it for the story. You don't go back to the same story the next day. You don't continue following it up for a week or two. The next day, you're on to a different story and a different story the day after that. But after interviewing what I estimate more than 10,000 people over the last 22 years that I've been working as a TV news reporter, I felt that some stories deserved more. Really, many stories deserved more, but, but there were some stories that I kept returning to. I might think about somebody in passing. I might Google to see what, if, if this person was still alive or was still living in the area or are they okay I might even have a dream about some of the mm-hmm. stories that I'd covered over the years. And, and I knew that the people were still on my mind. And I suspected that if I was still interested and I was still curious about what happened to the people at the center of these news stories that, that readers would be as well. And so that's why in the, in the winter of 2020, I started reaching out to some of the people who I had interviewed at news scenes over the past two decades. To number one, say, do you even remember me? Do you remember speaking with me? Number two, to say, I'm, I'm researching a book and I'd like you to be a part of it. And to be honest, in some of the cases, I, I also asked the third question, which was, do I owe you an apology? Mm-hmm. Do, do, I, do you regret speaking with me? Do you regret me intruding on your life during what in some cases might have been the worst or the most tumultuous or the most chaotic day? of your life. And, and that going into these meetings and these phone calls with people, when I finally tracked them down, it was, it was humbling. And it was also incredibly rewarding, put together the 10 stories that, that make up my book.
1: And and you cover in the book and you covered over the years, certainly many things I remember, and so many others will remember like Katrina and Sandy and uh, many will remember the 2003 Staten Island ferry crash. Uh, and I didn't remember the um, horrendous hit and run casualty you talked about. Mm-hmm. But you talk about so many accidents, tragedies, moving stories. And you, know, you, you use the word um, intrude and, and you use that in your book, of course. You also talk about moral ambiguity and maybe that's what you're referring to and, and balancing that with your professional obligations. You write that you sometimes felt you were intruding, as you said when approaching an accident victim or family member for an interview, and also that when you first started working in news, you would take as a personal insult any vitriol directed at you when you approach someone for an interview at the scene of an accident or other tragedy. Are these examples of when you felt moral ambiguity? Can you talk about that?
0: Sure. I think if you ask most journalists, the hardest part of the job, hands down, is the door knock, as I call it in my book. This idea of going up to someone's family's front door or or even approaching someone at a breaking news scene. And you know that their life is in chaos and, and here you are, right? I'm not a doctor. I'm not a police officer. I'm not an attorney. So I can neither heal nor prosecute, nor arrest the person who is responsible for what's happened. But I am there to listen and to share the story with the broader community. Now, Whether or not someone chooses to speak with me under those circumstances, we never know until we ask. And it is my obligation as a reporter to at least give people the opportunity to speak and to speak on the record or to provide the photo that they want used of their loved one instead of letting someone who barely knows them provide it. But that doesn't mean that everybody says yes, but I I think you might find it interesting that the vast majority of people do say yes. And so... I explore in the book, what is it about speaking with a reporter and about putting out your story to the general public that that people seem to generally want to do? And I I do think it speaks to sort of an innate human instinct to share our stories and to remember people who've been lost. and, And also really to open the door for the community to step in to help, whether that's donating to a GoFundMe site or attending somebody's wake and and comforting the family or even rallying for a new law to be passed in the wake of of something terrible that's happened. But yes, when I speak about the moral ambiguity of, of what I do for a living, I do have this sensation sometimes when I'm out doing these stories about, is this the right thing to do? Is it the right thing, the moral thing to do for me to knock on this person's door right now and and ask them to share their story with me. But again, the the benefit of hindsight and going back to these stories is that the families I spoke with, at least the ones who agreed to be a part of this project, did feel that sharing their story and opening themselves up to the larger community was helpful, both on a personal level and even looking back on some of these situations where, as I said, there's actually been social and systemic change as a result of the family's efforts.
1: So I love the way you talk about the vital role of local news reporters in the community. Is that part of what you see as your professional obligation? As I said, you, you describe pretty much balancing this moral ambiguity with fulfilling your professional obligation.
0: Absolutely, because we need to try to get the story right. We need to try to put an accurate story on the news. And in order to do that, when, when people opt not to speak with us, of course, that's their right. And they have the right to say no, and I respect that, but it does leave a vacuum then where if, if other people speak with us who are further away from the story or who don't really understand what happened or who are hearing it third hand, that can start to influence the coverage in a negative way, in my opinion, because then we don't have the full story. And so it's it's always been my philosophy, as hard as it is, and it is unquestionably the hardest part of the job, but as hard as it is to step outside my own comfort zone and make the ask, I do feel that it's important for the community and and for the viewers who I serve to at least try to get to the bottom of, of what's happened and to ask people to share their story with us.
1: Have there been times where you've decided or circumstances in which you've decided to forego a story?
0: I don't really have that option. Yeah, Unless the story involves someone who I know personally, where I might be too close to the story, so to speak, the idea of saying, well, that's just too sad or I can't handle that, that that's not really an option.
1: Talk about as well, if you would, you refer to news guilt. Um, not that I have, a jo- I have or had jobs similar to yours, but this really resonated. So you had a two-year-old, a four-year-old and a six-year-old. When you went out to cover Hurricane Sandy in October of 2012, you wrote that when you hugged your family to say goodbye to go out to cover the storm, the adrenaline was flowing. And as anxious as you may have felt leaving your family, you said there's a certain news guilt that kicks in when you stay home during a storm. Now I get this. That's, to, not, that's <laughs> true. I, I get the sense this feeling is is something more than journalistic FOMO. Talk uh, <laughs> talk to, to, to uh, about the adrenaline rush and how you deal with this feeling.
0: Sure. So I, I think I also talked about how I have three kids. As you said, uh, my son is now 15, and my daughters are 14 and 11. And I've been covering news for as long as they've been alive, so they've never really known anything different. But they know when there's a snowstorm coming that I won't be home sipping hot chocolate on the snow day with them or building a snowman. I'll be out <laughs> covering the storm from somewhere. And the same was true for Hurricane Sandy. It, it is a, a tricky balancing act because on the one hand, of course, my family comes first and I need to make sure that they're safe. And I'm so thankful to have the most wonderful husband who's always been a partner in everything and is very supportive of what I do. But when you're leaving when the you know hurricane sandy or superstorm sandy as it was called by us at that point is heading up the coast there is that sense of this feels unnatural maybe i shouldn't be leaving them right now and heading into the storm when everyone else is heading away from it but that sort of adrenaline rush that i write about that that is part of the job that i find very satisfying is being in the middle of the action and telling people about it and being able to give you a firsthand look when you're sitting at home and you're warm and safe by the TV, we're out in the storm telling you about it. And I feel a sense of purpose on those assignments. I know that, you know, I get a lot of feedback from the community and they're appreciative, whether whether they're messaging me on social media or even in some cases, people will come out and offer us coffee or water or a bathroom, you know, come inside our house for a few minutes. So, We love the general public and and how much they support us during those times. But, um, yeah, there's something about uh, when you're not out covering the storm, when you're so accustomed to having done it for so long, that you actually feel a sense of guilt being home and watching the storm like everyone else does. And I definitely felt that (laughs) on my maternity leave from work when I would be sitting at home and watching the snow blow outside the window and, and thinking I really should be out there. I shouldn't be in here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, your kids are very lucky to have such a great role model. And it sounds like you balance things, particularly with your husband, very well. So that, that's wonderful. Of, of the 10 stories you tell, each one is compelling. Is there one in particular that maybe you can share with us? And, and particularly I'm interested in, in is the uh, reaction of the individual individuals you spoke with. Several years later.
0: That was part of the book that that was so interesting to go back to. So I'm going to talk about a girl who was featured in chapter Seven, which is called Paramus Strong. And many people in the New York metropolitan area may remember um, back in 2018, there was a terrible accident on Route 80 in New Jersey, where a school bus loaded with children heading out to Waterloo Village in Western New Jersey, was struck by a dump truck and and every child on the bus was injured. And one teacher and one child were killed. And it was tragic. The kids were in fifth grade. And so I write in that chapter and I focus on a girl named Zaina Mattahan. And Zaina survived the crash at age 10. And her best friend was the child who was killed. And so I go back. To when I first inter- well, first of all, I covered the crash when it was a breaking news story. and we were talking about my role as a mom of three kids, and, and I think I felt immediately that day the same sense of dread that tens of thousands of other parents in New Jersey felt when they saw the news alert flash across their phones. or in my case, I got a call from the assignment desk, and they said, "There's been a school bus crash in New Jersey with kids heading to a field trip." And my own child was in fifth grade at that time. Mm-hmm. And so I had to go through the process of, of trying to figure out, is, is it possible my child was on that bus? So that was terrifying. And then to really put myself in the shoes of the other parents from Paramus, whose kids were on that bus, and and they're trying to figure out how's their child and what hospital did they go to? And these kids are too young to have IDs. They're too young to have cell phones. So it was hours before those parents even knew the fate of their children or, or where they were. And so it was so traumatic for everyone involved. And then I interviewed Zaina. She had a concussion and some other injuries. And I interviewed her three weeks after the crash. And now she's going into her sophomore year of high school. And this is a child who, in the wake of this terrible trauma, wound up going to the state house in Trenton, meeting with state lawmakers, speaking before Congress at the age of 11, to speak with national lawmakers about making school bus safety regulations better and, and making school buses safer for kids across the country. And this is a child who's really found her voice. And so again, it what happened to her and what happened to her classmates will never change, but the way she's been able to take control of the situation and, and really make things better for other kids in the future has been, absolutely incredible to watch. And, and she's such a bright child and a bright light in the world and really reconnecting with her and hearing about everything she's done. It it was just astonishing.
1: That's absolutely wonderful. And you told that story in such a way, as you could see, I I read a lot, but it it was as if you were writing a novel because I was Mm -hmm. convinced the way you were telling the story, the way you set it up, that the dump truck driver was at fault. And of course, that was not the case. So you you communicated the story, as I said, compelling. The follow-up is just, um, it's heartwarming. Uh, So it was heartbreaking and then heartwarming. But uh, it was just such a well-told story. So I thank you for that. It really was.
0: Thank you. and I appreciate the takeaway that you had from that chapter because there does seem to be a sentiment these days where people will say things like, the news is just so upsetting. The news is just so sad. I can't even turn it on. It's just so upsetting. I I can't watch it. And what I think this book speaks to is, yes, all of these stories when they were initially told, for the most part, were very upsetting, some aspect of them, right? Mm -hmm. But here we are now, years later, and you realize the outcome and, and what can come of these stories. And each of the those chapters is so uplifting when you see what the people have done with their lives and, and how they've managed to triumph in the wake of a lot of this, that I hope it does give people a little more perspective on the news and really the people who we're covering, that it's not just that one day that they're at the center of the news story, but it's the way that they pick themselves up and move forward despite everything they've gone through.
1: What the book tells me is there's something very special about local news And I think the way you cover it and the way you've reported on your reporting, it's very educational. It's very informative. And uh, I I do also hope that others get what I got out of the book. What what was most compelling to me, as I think I've said, is this vital role of local news reporters in the community. And I wonder how many, and let's not count them, but I would expect that many of the uh, follow-up stories were stories about individuals who were positively impacted by the coverage or, or that, that's part of what I get out of it. Now, I, I, with you, I feel as if that, of course, the individuals made the difference in their lives. But in some cases, you helped, as you said earlier, uh, with fundraising, not overtly, but people got their story out. And maybe there was GoFundMe pages, uh, the GoFundMe efforts that were helped. Uh, in other cases, uh, maybe you helped give this young girl, her voice by first talking with her. And, and was she the one, or was that the story in which some dad said to you, you know, get the camera out of my daughter's face or something to that effect?
0: Yes, that wasn't Zaina's dad. That was another parent in Piranus. So uh, I, speaking about the chaos and, and the confusion really uh, on the day that some of these breaking news stories happened, we knew where the bus had come from after some period of time. So um, the photographer and I were sent to the middle school where the field trip had originated, assuming that at least some of the students who had been in the bus accident would be on their way back. We didn't even realize at the time that the accident was so severe that every single child and every single adult who was on that bus was in the hospital. So Mm -hmm. the people who were saying things to us, like, get the camera out of my face, get away from my child, those were parents whose children were not on the school bus, but people who had learned of the accident and, and I'm sure knew some of the children who had been injured. And, and I'm not judging those parents. I, I understand that that's some people's reactions and, and that's part of the job is saying, okay, that person is not going to do an interview with us today, but some other parents will.
1: So there's a balance between the raw nerves, which are understandable, and your I think you, you, t- you use this uh, term, your thick skin yes. and your ability to focus on, on getting the story done.
0: Right. I serve the viewers. And if I'm not going to get into a shouting match with somebody on the sidewalk. If somebody chooses not to speak with us on camera for a news story, I respect that decision. But that doesn't mean that I don't have to do the news story.
1: The knock on the door or the ask, again, that's, what a tough job. But, but you do it. So, so you've got a bunch of kids running around. You're, who you're bringing up in New Jersey with, with your husband. You've got a full-time, full-time demanding job. So it may not be fair to ask, but are you reading anything of great interest at this time?
0: <laughs> I, I'm always reading something, just sometimes not getting through it as fast <laughs> as I would like to. And um, actually, I'm in the middle of a friend and colleague's book right now. I'm in the middle of Katie Turr's Rough Draft. Oh. And I'm really enjoying it. And Katie and I worked together for some period of time at NBC in New York and I still occasionally see her at Thirty Rock when I'm on the third floor anchoring the local news and she's hosting her show on MSNBC. And I just think that I mean Katie's had a fascinating life. Her what her parents did in Los Angeles is really interesting. And so I'm I'm greatly enjoying her book and it's it's always fun to read something about someone who you know personally and and you're learning more about the person you know while reading it. That's great. That's what I'm currently reading.
1: We're big fans. That's great. Well, I thank you very much. This has been fascinating. You've been terrific. The book was really good. And uh, thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Howard, for for taking the time and the interest in the project. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, you're very welcome. More information about our guest today can be found on our website, www.bookwormsinthewild.com which also includes links to the books and other resources we referred to in our discussion. Thanks especially to my podcast team. Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible for art direction and design for the podcast, our website, and my bookmark. Melanie provides overall creative direction. Ben and Eden and Catherine provide additional inspiration and support. And of course, Carol is my muse. Three-year-old Jakey, who's living with us for the summer, continues to encourage the podcast, as does Jake's baby cousin, Francesca, now one and another great source of inspiration for us all. The entire Wolfpack is also responsible for introducing me to most of our guests, although not today. I was introduced to Jen, by my friend Laura Metzka, thank you very much, Laura. Thanks to the great anchor team for making it free and easy to create the podcast, and thanks as well to AJ Falari who is working on the editing with me. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe, and in any event, let me have your comments either directly on the podcast or at, bookworms in the wild at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next time.